a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very good. Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. Uh, this week, we are very excited to re-invite Mr. Kirk Carlton. Uh, he was the Boeing employee contracted out through NASA. Last week, we covered a bunch of really cool stuff that you did, man. Uh, the From the space shuttle program, from all sorts of different engineering challenges that you encounter, uh, to just basically having the most awesome job I've ever heard of in my life. So uh, that's pretty cool. And of course, back with us is Patrick. How you doing, Patrick? I'm doing great. Cool. Okay. Well, welcome to Expanding Reality, guys. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. And uh, you can always hit us up at expandingrealitypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us at the Instagram, the Facebook, uh, the Twitter, all those good things. Uh, the video of this will be up on our um, Expanding Reality uh, YouTube. So if you want to see what uh, this handsome man, Kirk Carlton, looks like, as well as uh, my handsome brother, Patrick, uh, then you can. So that's where you can do that. So uh, let's pick this thing back up where we left off last time that we were speaking, which was uh, your job is super awesome. And you did a bunch of really cool stuff uh, through your career. So uh, one thing I was curious about were um, all the testing facilities. So what what did that involve? Uh, one of the great things about working with NASA is that NASA has all the test facilities. I mean, that's uh, they have... Uh, vacuum chambers, thermal vacuum chambers, uh, arc jet facilities, the neutral buoyancy lab, mm -hmm. uh, the vomit comet, the uh, zero gravity aircraft. Yes. Um, when when they contract you for a job, you can utilize their facilities to certify whatever they've asked you to do. Yeah. So that gives you just a, a huge ability to do some very cool things. I mean, I, I was a scuba diver in the neutral buoyancy lab. I flew in numerous missions on the vomit comet and all of those are to test aspects of the designs you're trying to get you know you're selling to nasa yeah and it's it's it was either parts of space shuttle or parts of space station and you know they're all just very cool one of a one of a kind designs so you have to go through a certification process for that design and you're using their test facilities to prove that what you designed will work because those elements of the testing facilities are already certified, and those are the requirements to be able to certify anything that gets shot into space Correct. based on those test facilities. Correct, and and we we there's a huge amount. Uh, my late career was involved with making sure anything that we designed that an astronaut had to touch, assemble, manipulate, actuate that it was properly designed. So it's designed to work with the set of tools that are available to that astronaut. Mm -hmm. It's designed to work within the capabilities of the astronaut's strength, the astronaut's vision, uh, the the actual positioning the astronaut so that he can actually do the job you're asking him to do. So that was uh, the later part of the job, but it was uh, it it came round full circle whenever you're whatever you're doing that an astronaut has to touch. 
you've got to design properly. The hard part of it, and I was talking with Patrick earlier, the boring part of the job is working the requirements and working the design and, and trying to get to the point where you can actually have something physical and actually test it. Mm. So uh, we would always try early to build simulators with similar mechanical interfaces so we could prove to the astronaut he could work with it. Mm -hmm. And then when you actually get to the actual flight design, you usually build a, a prototype that you actually put through the, the thermal vac testing if needed or any of the testing needed. And again, it was working up to all the proof you had to generate before you could actually go out and build. Right. You know, NASA doesn't just give you a blank check. They, no. they give you gates all the way along the line that you have to prove to them that your design is feasible, then it will actually work, and then you can actually certify it, and then we actually test it. And every gate, NASA is there to make sure that you're doing your job and you you're proven to them you're doing your job. Yeah. What did, what did the thermal testing involve? What what was that? N NASA has all kinds I mean uh, I mentioned on a, on your last cast that it was uh um most things you work with in the vacuum of space have to survive from minus 200F to plus 250F. So a lot of them they have these small chambers. If you have a small thing, you can have a 3 by 3 chamber with you know, gloves reaching through it. So I can put it down to minus 200 degrees, actuate it, make sure it functions, mm. and then heat up the changer to plus 250, you know, reach in through the gloves again and actuate it at 250 to make sure that the mechanical aspects worked at both extremes. Mm. On a bigger scale, they have a, a chamber that you can actually put an astronaut into. So if I have a larger mechanism that the astronaut has to manipulate, you put that mechanism in in this larger chamber, you put an astronaut in a spacesuit. Spacesuit weighs a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so he is suspended by uh, a weight suspension crane. Oh, to take the weight take, off of the so, suit so that, in, in gravity. Correct, in okay. gravity so that his weight and the combination weight of the suit, which is around 500 pounds. Damn. Um, it, it, he doesn't have to fight that right. to do the testing. And then you put the, the, the mechanism in front of him and you have him actuate it. And you do the same thing. He's sitting in a chamber. Once he's in the chamber, it's not like you walk in, walk out. He stays in the chamber through the whole test. You bring things up to temperature. He, he walks into the chamber and he tests it. So he kind of has an airlock that he goes back into when he's not exposed to the environment. And then we change the environment and we heat everything up. And then when it's at the right test temperature, he goes back in and does it again. And you never just go at the extremes. You usually, you know, let's just say you jump 50 degrees at a time. So you test it at... At, at ambient and then you go 50 degree increments up to 250 yeah. and then you step it back down and you go to the cold side and you go down to you know plus 20 and then you go down to minus 50 and then minus 100 and actuated it at, at those different increments makes sense just <coughs> just to make sure it works yeah okay so i am definitely curious um, and i know the listeners are as well about this vomit comet thing uh, that is, the, of course, the, the airplane that goes up and does these uh, parabolic flights, which simulate zero gravity in, in what small increments of, what, 30 seconds, a minute? That's basically it. You get about a 30-second. Basically, you take an aircraft up to 30,000 feet, and you stall the aircraft. Mm -hmm. So it, it dives for roughly 20,000 feet, which gives you about 30-ish seconds of zero gravity effect. And it would be just like skydiving inside an airplane damn right so it's very very cool environment yeah and uh to test but that gives you a 
you know, a 20, 30 second window of true zero gravity. Yeah. So if you have an experiment that you can do in zero gravity, that is an environment you do it in. And then typically the aircraft will, you know, we launch from Johnson Space Center or take off from Johnson Space Center and you fly out over the Gulf. You do 20 parabolas out and you do 20 parabolas back and then you land at, at the local airfield. And that gives you you know, 30 seconds times 40 parabolas. So, yeah. you know, it gives you all of 20 minutes of data to work with. And hopefully that gives you what you're looking for. Uh, we were talking earlier about the Columbia accident. One of the things that we did that was n- necessary, I, I mentioned the silica tile, it's the heat protection of the shuttle. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it doesn't, nothing sticks to it. So we developed several different uh, goo applications to fill damage to these silica tiles. And the zero gravity part of the job was have an astronaut apply this goo and <coughs> and then he would he would apply it in zero gravity. So during that first 30 seconds of free fall, he applies it. And then to make sure it would set, what we would do is you go through about a 2G pullout to get back to 30,000 feet. Mm. And we we set up this test stand so that the astronaut is on his back applying, you know, a caught gun goo over his head. And that was your job to design the test apparatus that was mounted to the aircraft for the Correct. Tile. We're, 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 you know, implementing the test. Right. So we're, we developed these, it was a, a file system to hold the test samples mm-hmm. and a test bed. So the astronaut is, suspended properly so that he can do the job you're asking him to do and then we so we would simulate would this stick in zero gravity we would simulate that in the first 30 seconds and then the proof that it actually worked is we would go through a 2g pullout so we allow that test sample to go through a 2g pullout and if the the goo didn't separate from the tile we accomplished our goal so was this a hazing thing who drew the short straw for the first test run on this to lay underneath that thing (laughs) as you were making sure that it tested properly and astronauts are are usually go to people. Uh-huh. They're the first ones in line. Yeah, they're going. I want to. Like, I want to do. I want to get this. a black eye from this. It'll be a cool story. And, and that's any any test is a good test mm-hmm. in their minds. If you're gonna, if we're gonna get into, you know, can we actually do this on orbit? And they can be a part of that that process. They love it. That's so cool. And and that's was the cool thing about the job was we were always testing <clears throat> one of a kind equipment and actually making it work. Yeah, proving that it worked. It's so cool. It's just a big science experiment the entire time. And, and it's fascinating. So on this particular one, you guys uh, went out and it was, what was your normal routine um, parabolic uh, flight pattern? Uh, again, you, you go up to 30,000 feet. Uh-huh. You dive down every minute. You dive down to, to 10,000 feet. You get about 30 seconds of zero gravity. The pullout and back to 30,000 feet takes about a minute and a half. Okay. And then as soon as it gets to 30,000 feet, you're going right into the next parabola. It's just a series deal. So you just expect it every... Continuous parabola. Wow. So the job that we had was to get a test sample into the the apparatus that he's testing from, Mm -hmm. go through the 2G pullout, get that test sample out, install a new fresh one. And, and then go for the next parabola. Did all of them work or did any of them fall off? Oh, all, a lot of them never worked. I mean, oh, okay. it, it, <laughs> so it, they're it, just it, smacking this poor guy. Well, I mean, uh, often, <laughs> yeah. you know, you would, you would, uh, we tried to work techniques. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like welding. There's a technique that works best. Mm. 
And the same thing is true of applying a caulk, yeah. right? You got to figure out a way that is the best way to apply it without making it too gloppy. We tried to do it in layers. You know, okay. could you do one thin layer and then come back and do another layer and then come back and do another layer? So a lot of times we'd reuse the samples if that worked. There's so much that goes into this testing stuff. It's just that even down to that, the technique, don't just slap it on there and try it out. No, let's try this and then that. And so what were the results of that particular test? Did you guys achieve the goal that you were looking for? Yes. And and often we would take uh, fully prepared samples that we actually applied the the flight-like adhesive to. Mm -hmm. And then we would actually take that test sample and then we would put that sample into another NASA facility, which was the ArcJet facility, which simulated reentry. So, oh, so it basically, yeah, you're the heat of reentry. So basically you're applying a blowtorch into the facility. And then the, the pass for that test is that the goo that you applied didn't burn away or fall out as it burned oh. away. Or, you know, we, we would, uh, the piece in the, in the vomit comet was to apply it. Mm-hmm. You'd let it cure the next piece of the test was put it into the uh, the arc jet and see if it burned away mm. and if it didn't burn away then you have a successful test from application through reentry. and that application process had to take place within that 30 second window of free fall because let's say for instance you designed a you your chemical engineers designed a compound that would do it but it took 32 seconds to work and and again you you we only we could only do as much as we could do right. so a lot of times we would uh prepare samples in in 1g mm. and if you could apply it in 1g and it's stuck under 1g of of pull out if you want to call it that sure just in a natural shirt sleeve environment then you'd be okay the tough part always got to be okay well it's in a vacuum how, how does the the catalyst and the chemical work in in a vacuum versus working in an oxygen environment so you had to you we we got to the point where we were working in a vacuum chamber and applying uh, these this goo into the tile inverted, mm-hmm. so it had one G of pullout. But if it stayed in with the one G, then we could still use it and do a uh, uh, ablative test to yeah. see if it would stick and hold. And that that and, test, of course, came about because of the two thousand three Columbia incident that happened right. whenever the one of the tiles failed because of a damage on on right. ascent right. Uh, on reentry. And that's the whole reason this whole. The whole reason we even got into this set of test criteria was, again, solve the problem. How do I repair a shuttle that got hurt on ascent? Right. And this was just one of the pieces. That's so cool. Um, a completely separate couple company was working on the actual adhesive. Mm. And like I said, it was basically a two-part silicon-based epoxy with a catalyst right. that worked without oxygen. Right. Sounds simple when you roll it off the tongue like that, but it's it not doesn't. a simple problem. <laughs> no. Right? And, then, <laughs> and then that... that that material after it dries has to withstand you know thousand degree you know uh re-entry yeah. heat and so it and typically and you know the the original you know the old 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 capsule designs mm-hmm. the russians use solid oak the, oh, but their ablation damn. their ablation shield was solid oak because you can't burn through three inches of oak in a few minutes in that amount of time right yeah. so i mean wow. it, it, it created a char and that char was carbon, which could take heat better than yep. the oak itself, and you couldn't get through the three inches of oak, you know. And but again, you replaced it every time. 
it was a one-time use. Back in the capsule day, it only had to survive once. So not only the one-time use, but probably the weight of that as well. I bet shooting that amount of wood up That's, and then going to the silica tiles or the uh, porcelain tiles that you guys ended up using was... Because you need and, a lot more of those because the surface area of the shuttle... Uh, next time we get together, I'll bring you a piece. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We okay. have, I have some of the silica tile. And you'll see it. It's, I mean, it, it looks like... It, it feels like styrofoam. It's so light. Wow. But it's actually... Uh, the silica, it has a, a porcelain composition to it. Damn. And a ceramic composition to it, but it doesn't weigh anything. Coolest job ever. I'm telling you. Uh, that's going to be the name of this episode. Coolest job ever. And what? Oh, my apologies. That's all right. When I, uh, when I graduated from school, so I mean, I did went through an engineering degree, mm-hmm. tried, to, tried to focus on uh, aircraft performance, aircraft design. That was kind of the niche I was headed down. Mm-hmm. And we jumped into the space shuttle program. And I have to say... After those, that first few years, nothing that I did in school had anything to do with where my career ended up. Kind of like how teachers today will tell you that you'll use algebra all the time and you won't. I, well, and I will to, say- For most people, you I, use the shit I, out of algebra. Yeah, but, I, but for I most use, of us- I use a lot. I, I use more trig than anything else because when wow. you're doing drawing, review, and, and verification, you know, you're always going- okay, what's that angle and what's that length and what's that thing, what's that one, you know, just yeah. to get to, is that dimension correct on a drawing? So if you paid for an education, you used very little of later. Was it just simply because um, the program was so unique and new and it was just never been done before? It's like any education. You know, you you, you, you study everything mm. and then usually you focus on a small piece. Okay, I could see and that. And again, I never used any of my aircraft design aspect of, of my career. Yeah. I did... It was an actually an aeronautical astronautical degree, so I did do a lot of orbit dynamics. Mm. I was never a big thermal guy. I was never a big electrical guy. Okay. But as time grew, I just you got smarter because you you knew how to learn. Yeah, you had that foundation. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and, and yeah, the learning process itself. Yeah, the learning process is the same. It just depends on what small aspect you're trying to focus on. But Damn. So it the, was. Go ahead. No, that's right. I, I was, and I I. I a lot of my friends have always told me, you have a cool job. Yes. Right? And I'm going, the, the fun part of the job was being able to work small projects mm. beginning to end. Yeah. You know, conceptual to actual creating a, a reality, building it, testing it. And then if there was a man in the loop, which most of my projects were, then you actually have that man test it to make sure that he can do exactly what you're asking him to do. Damn. And. You got, to, you got to start from a blank piece of paper and then you get to a final project where you have hardware and you have the guy who's actually going to use the hardware, train with you, test with you, and then actually execute it on orbit. But that same model applies to a lot of things, like designing a new action figure, for instance. Um, and it's still not as cool of a job. You I, definitely have a cool, and, like that's still is and, applying that same model. And, and a piece we really haven't talked about, but <clears> when <throat> they actually execute the spacewalk on orbit, mm-hmm. I'm in one of the back rooms at Mission Control, you know, walking that guy through the process, through the the procedure, through the headset on. And again, I always called it the way back room Mm -hmm. because, I mean, there's there's the NASA front room. Then NASA has all its back rooms. And we're the engineering core, you know, a couple rooms behind that. Yeah, it's dimly lit. They don't even give you good coffee. They don't. And then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what we what we do is, you know, when you get the when you get the call back there, that's because they need to know, right? You know, something. It's like, oh, now you need me. Well, yeah. that's okay. That's, that's okay. Right. You yeah. know, we know what we know our place, and 
when you have a problem, that's that's where you go back to. So what was an example? Because I want to ask you one more question about the vomit comment, but I'm, now that we're on this thread and I want to be on this thread, uh, what was one example of an issue that you were able to, over the comms, um, walk an astronaut through, spacewalk an astronaut through? Uh, it, there, There's innumerable. He, you know, he's walking through a procedure, mm-hmm. right? And, and every step along the way, he, you're, you've tried to train him about how that mechanism worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, a real good example, there's, a, there's a fluid systems for the cooling outside on space station. Mm. And there's lots of uh, quick couplings for all these things. Well, there's a, obviously a, a cap that goes over the male, and you bring up a female on a hose, and you undo the cap, and you plug in this connector, and you actuate a bale, and then you've got a good fluids, fluid path. Okay. I remember an astronaut in particular went up to one of these capped interfaces and we told him how to remove the cap a hundred times. He got up there to do the first one and he's going, it's stuck. Hmm. And we're going, do you remember I told you way back when Mm -hmm. that you need to pull to unlock a latch, to disengage a locking mechanism and then turn. Yeah. So you need to pull and turn as opposed to just try and unscrew it like the opposite of a childproof uh it's prescription a s- bottle same I- same okay. I- same idea okay right? and and he even said on orbit i know kurt told me that and i lost that <laughs> bit you know well and think about it too i mean you're uh, up there you've got to like even you can train and train and train down here which is why you want to do an abundance of training but right. once you get up there it's a psychologically it's totally different man you're outside the iss you're floating around this marble in space that we all inhabit and <laughs> It, you can psychologically kind of, you know. I, I'm kind of afraid, afraid of heights. When you get up to a really high spot and your knees start doing that oh, heebie-jeebie, God, yeah. you know, can you imagine stepping outside of a vehicle and not even having a floor? Yeah. <laughs> you don't even know how high you are. You're just out there, 200, 200 miles in space. Right. And especially if it's your first spacewalk to do, and you've got to go out there and achieve a directive that you train for and train for and train for. And I know, I like though that he couldn't remember how to do it, but he remembered that you were the one who told him don't forget this <laughs> yes. yeah and he said and when he when he after we got, and again uh at, in mission control an astronaut on the ground is the only one who talks to the astronauts on orbit mm. but that astronaut on the ground is talking to all of us in the back rooms it's like a game and of telephone but it's got to be way more accurate it, it's kind of like this everybody's wearing headsets mm-hmm. and everybody's it's controlled conversation but you know everybody has a chance to communicate mm. and uh but it got back up and and as soon as we told him you, to disengage that, you need to pull and then turn. And he's going, ah, you know. <laughs> I remember Kurt told me that I forgot. You so know? your voice and, is on a NASA transcript somewhere of him saying, "I remember Kurt," or his voice right. saying your name. Yes, that's so great. He, he's recorded. Yes, he's recorded yes, things. Yes. But uh, well, it, it's too much fun. I mean, but that happens quite a lot because things don't always go smoothly. Of course. And then if something doesn't work, I mean, we talked about earlier things freezing up in yes. cold and loosening up in the heat. So. I mean, a communication would be, we tested that, it got better when it got warm. Mm-hmm. So then you communicate up to him, wait till the next sun pass, let the thing warm up, and then actuate it again. Were there things that you guys tested on Earth that you knew would do better if it was warmer, that you waited for the sun cycle to go around, for that EVA to occur at a specific heat, a, a specific thermal range? There, there are some things that you don't have a lot of choice, but mm. you try and design it for the whole spectrum mm-hmm. so that you don't have to do that. Of course. A spacewalk is only six hours. Mm. So you go through four, I think I mentioned that orbits, uh, 90 minutes. So you get 30 minutes of a night pass, an hour of a, of a day pass. Mm. And you don't want to limit what you can be accomplishing in that six-hour interval to waiting on the proper environment to come around. 
Let me ask you this, and this is going to sound stupid, but I just thought about it. Um, so why not just orbit where you're always in the sun? Why not do like a semi-polar orbit or something like that, or a polar orbit to where you always have sun facing you? Just Because they're always at I, equatorial orbits, right? They don't really do much polar orbiting. You don't, you know, and the inclination of the station, I should know this, it's 52 degrees, right? Well, I'm going to go with the yes. You're the, you're the, Doesn't matter. You're, the expert, you're, yeah. you're at an inclination, and, and you're just that inclination defines what you're doing. Gotcha. In order to do that, you need to be going, you know, at north south the whole time and right. always facing the sun. And you really don't want that because then one side of your vehicle's always cold and the other side's always hot. Got you, like a phase lock planet or something like so that. So you want to be in a rotisserie mode. Okay, that to makes where, sense. To where it's always always different i never thought about it yeah, before it was just yeah. something i was wondering you know if you have to time those things out but the ebb and flow of ebb it would flow. that's the tolerances you guys plan for and so of course right. that's what you would want want to have we, so we were starting on test facilities but before i get off that yeah. it was a another big aspect of any astronaut training is doing underwater work mm. at the neutral point yes lab. yes and um uh an astronaut whenever for every hour he spends on orbit in a spacesuit, he tries to get 10 hours of underwater training for that hour of work on orbit. So their rigor is, you know, getting seven to 10 times as much underwater work doing what you're going to ask them to do on orbit. Makes sense. And that gives them muscle memory, mm -hmm. right? Practices, works out techniques. And that, confidence that is just a series of successes. So you and, want that. And the neutral buoyancy lab at NASA, it's, you know the best pool in the world it's a uh, hundred feet by 200 feet by 40 foot deep mm. and in that pool we put basically the entire space station Ooh. so there is an and it's it's for external work only so mm. we don't we have modules but they are just you know cans external because right? you wouldn't need to simulate that in the internal correct you're yeah. not you're not going for internal you're already worried about what's on the outside right right and but the whole thing is out there so we can put a, an astronaut in a spacesuit he, if we need him to translate from the airlock to wherever he's going to do his work, he can plan his route. You know, they, we design space stations so that we have a special handhold everywhere he needs to go. We call them translation paths. Mm. So you just make he's figuring out how to get from point A to point B to do the job you're asking him to do. Yeah. Once he gets to the work site, you have him set up his 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 work platform. He's bringing all the tools with him. He brings a foot restraint to set it up next to where he wants to be. And then once he gets there, he's doing the job you asked him to do. Uh, change out a piece of equipment. Assemble a piece of equipment. Um, and, I mean, the cool part about the job was always, before we actually got to doing it on orbit, we did it, you know, in test test environments. We did it in simulators that were similar in design enough to, prove the mechanical and then when we got further along you know we tested it again the actual flight hardware before it went into the shuttle payload bay and then after it gets out and it gets executed on orbit you get to see that end of it as well where the astronaut actually touches the actual mechanism and it actually functions on orbit damn there were there were i mean lots of problems that you have to solve real time and mm -hmm. that's why they want all the engineers in mission control if I need a real-time fix, I need a quick answer. Right. So I want all the smartest people that were involved in that aspect of the project with a headset on so that we can ask them any question that might get us to a quick quick solution. And so I guess the neutral buoyancy lab, that pool is the most cost-effective way to do the closest simulation of zero gravity that you can. 
underwater neutral buoyancy like scuba diving is the best zero gravity environment that we have on earth besides zero gravity why not just make it like a gigantic zero gravity chamber and there aren't there vacuum chambers that you can do to create simulate that not zero gravity okay right? there's vacuum there's vacuum chambers to create a vacuum right but they're still in 1g Okay, see, okay. this is what I was wondering, because they do this test where they drop a bowling ball and a feather in a vacuum, and sure. so they land at the same time to test that Newtonian theory, right? Right. Okay, so, but it's still, it's still affected it's, by gravity. It's still one, yeah, it's still affected by gravity. That. Okay. So the only way, I mean, the we mentioned the vomit comet, the, mm -hmm. the zero-gravity aircraft where you're basically skydiving, right, Right. and you are in zero gravity when you are free-falling. Right. Okay, and then the other, the... The, the most controlled way to do the environment is underwater neutral buoyancy. Right. When you scuba dive, you you know you put lead weights on you to compensate for the air in your tanks, mm. and and you get to a point where you're properly neutral buoyancy Neutrally is buoyant. when yeah. you're not going up or you're not going down. Right. And we do the same thing underwater. We put the the astronaut in a spacesuit is basically a balloon underwater. Mm -hmm. So we load him up with lead mm. on his ankles, on his back, on his chest to give him a proper orientation you want him relative to what he's doing but then he just manipulates his body without you know kicking like you're in water or you know just using hand over hand translations to get around and does it still balance out if they need to go do something upside down you know they're able to kind of 360 or they kind of have to be oriented a certain way because of the way the weights are arranged um, you you can go inverted okay. in a spacesuit and it's um, basically the same thing it's harder on a person because all the blood rushes to your head. Yes. So there's protocols that says you can only do that for a short amount of time. Okay. And then if you stay in that inverted position too long, they write you for a minute, let you clear your head, and then put you back into it. Because so, in zero gravity, it wouldn't matter. That that blood's not circulating in that correct. way. Correct. It's okay. not doing that. But on the ground test, you you try and set up the test environment so he's heads up in the pool. Okay. And but that is the best way to simulate zero gravity, is is underwater in a pool and. NASA religiously trains all spacewalking astronauts to in the pool to the best simulation of anything they're trying to do on orbit. Did they ever let you put on a suit and go down there? I have, I want to say I have about 70 hours in a spacesuit. Damn. Um, testing out hardware that we actually built and assembled underwater. Yeah, because you'd need to get in there to know how the scissors work that you designed the handles for. Or, or and really, I'm, they typically run what we call an engineering run. Mm. before we want a suited astronaut run. Because you can work out all the kinks for the training. Correct. You don't want to waste ah, their time doing, right. you know, working out things that are were not properly done in the test setup. So you want to make sure everything's set up correctly to, to run it through it. And early in the program, I, engineers were getting in suits often to do that first test run. That mm. first, you know, I, you're just doing the first cut at the simulation. Yeah, because you're basically and, writing the training manual for it. Correct. In right? that and, run. And we're, yeah, and, and you're also, yeah, you're fleshing out the procedures you've developed that you're going to work with the crew member. Mm. So you're not only testing out the hardware, you're also testing out the, you know, the, the choreography of the test. Right. And, and and that's all part of the job. Yeah. And it just depends on what aspect. We had people that they were dedicated to running the tests and writing the procedures. And there's another set of people that were dedicated to manipulate getting all the hardware ready and configured in the pools ready for the test so it's based on the the way the hardware is designed is how the procedure is written for the repair right. not the other way around they don't write the damn procedure and then design it a certain no, way it's always one doesn't affect the other the design's there procedures always last right and okay. you just got to make sure that everything's built to the requirements so that you can write the procedures mm -hmm. and it's going to work with the astronaut it's going to work with the tools 
uh, I, a simple example is the, the your choice of tools on orbit are a seven sixteenths bolt head mm. or a five ace bolt head. Okay, that was something I was going to ask. So, I mean, they have a, 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 a cadre of sockets and right. tools and extensions that are set up for 7 16 and 5 ace. So, if you have a high torque application, you're using a 5 ace uh, bolt head and a larger tool. Mm. If you're using a smaller bolt application, you're using something like a Makita and you're putting a, a socket on the end of it. Okay. But again, that bolt head has to be designed specifically to work with the tools taking into account all the thermal extremes yeah. because even metal shrinks and grows. Mm -hmm. So you got to just work all that out as part of your design. And then when you get to the point where you're actually building the procedures and testing it, it should, it should work. So do they have both on your automatic tools? Like you said, like a Makita, like do they have battery powered and pneumatic or are they one or the other? It's pure battery. Pure battery. Okay. Yep. So no pneumatic tools whatsoever. Okay. Nothing. I mean, so you need the real high torque if you need it built into that. And thing. there's, yeah, you want to talk about an expensive tool. Oh, there yeah. is a, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it actually has an on go, onboard computer on it, too, wow. so that it can record all the data. Uh, and again, it's like running torque, final setting torque, mm. and it has a little display that the crew member can read. So if I tell him to torque something up to 10 foot-pounds, the tool, he sets it to that setting, he drives it, and then the tool tells him the set torque that it actually accomplished. So it's good. They're like, you're good. Stop there. Yeah, and, and well, wow. it, it stops itself, right. and then he just confirms that he got the torque that you wanted visually on the screen and, it, and it's got you know uh uh level one mm. a through f level two a through f so you have like a dozen settings to work from and the first one's two foot pounds and the last one's 25 foot pounds and every couple of foot pounds in between is that something they have to remember will you say go into this tool set it for this foot pound go to three f and then um they'll just set it to that and then stop at a certain point well and it'll it'll like like a makita it it it's when it gets to that proper speed or that proper torque, it, it stops itself. Interesting. Or in the case of on ground tool, you get that ratcheting sound when you hit yes. the torque you want. In this case, the tool stops when it realizes the torque that you go to. And again, you tell the astronaut, go to, go to setting A3. Yeah. He goes to that setting and he said, okay, go to that. We need about 10 turns out of this and it should, you should torque out when you're done. Wow. He sits there and it tells him how many turns he went and it tells him what torque it's set in. And he reads that back to us on the ground so that we can confirm he got the right direction. He got the right number of turns and he got the proper torque. And it's just a teamwork, not only in design and implementation, but even even things like that, just simple operations is fascinating because you don't want that guy having to think, or that guy or girl having to remember all those conversion charts. They got enough things to think about. They'll relay it to you. You guys can confirm and then relay it back. The teamwork and, element is this, is something that's so impressive, how well, many people it takes. And, and if he's working a power tool, you mm -hmm. know, you send up to him, I, need, I want it to go clockwise. Mm. I want it to be this torque setting, and it's going to be about this many turns. Mm. So he understands how many turns, and he can... Watch the tool turn. Yeah. It's usually not high speed. So right. you, you could watch it turn or you could just watch the counter on the tool. Mm -hmm. But typically, if you say go to hard stop, he just goes until you hit that hard stop and then he verifies with the tool that it reached the proper torque and turns. They relat to the ground so that all of our structural guys that are sitting in those way back rooms can go, okay, that, that bolt was properly engaged, torque and turns as we expected. And now he can move on to the next bolt. Damn. And I mean, you're going you're going through step by step by step for every turn of a wrench. Yeah, and 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 it goes on and on. Uh, um, a lot of the aspects of 
the equipment we use. I mentioned medical field mm -hmm. has a lot of tools that we have stole from. Sailing is another area where you use a lot of tools. Uh, sailing. Pit pins on and sailing, that's usually a pin that you, you know, you, you put a clevis lug situation and you put a pin in there that has a little ball detent on it that keeps that that clevis and lug in place. Kind of like a, a cotter pin? Or, or, or a quick release pin. Oh, okay. Okay. I see right. what you're it's saying. Just, it's, it's not really a cotter pin, but it's spring-loaded oh, quick yes. release pins. Yes. We, we use that design on Space Station everywhere. So Damn. if you can get away with a with a pit pin application, if it just needs to be secure but not really tight, right. you put a pit pin in it. And a crew member can actuate a pit pin with, with fingers. Yeah. And if you need that kind of an interface, we use it everywhere. Um, another big one was a French hook. Uh, that's that the quick hooks that they have oh, yes. in sailing. It just has a little spring-loaded little clasp, and it's a stainless steel hook. And that's what they hook themselves onto so they don't go flying off. That's their tether apparatus, or, right? Or anything that you can hook by that kind of a hook. We can buy huh. that, that, that stainless steel sailing hook off the shelf and pretty much use it. Damn. With, okay. with limited, minimal testing to make sure there's no lubricants or goose in there. Mm. That was another thing we talked about, weird thermal extremes. Yes. Um, if you introduce grease, which we do on the ground on everything, you mm -hmm. know, you introduce a little bit of lubricant to make things work a little bit better. Yeah. That doesn't work in space. Well, but we only need to do that here because of friction, right? <laughs> yeah, but mechanisms have friction in them already, mm. right? So mm. it's reduced in space, but if, if you have introduced a grease into a piece of hardware before it flew and then you fly it, that grease will freeze up. Oh. And so that, it, then it does it, the opposite. It does the right? complete opposite of what you're asking it to do. So um, typically you got to get everything designed in it. You, you don't use lubricants. You don't use anything. It's got to be spring forces, positive latches, positive detents that yeah. are, uh, um, don't involve anything like what you would normally do on the ground, which is, you know, throw a little, WD-40 yeah, on it, and it'll work fine. Yeah, garage door <laughs> sticking up on you. Yeah. But you've got to do all that within the tolerances also of the heat extreme, so the ebb and flow of the of the actuation of the actual material. And then you've got to do this within tolerances of not needing a lubricant to do something that you would need a lubricant to do. And and they make dry film lubricants. Okay. And those are, uh, I can't remember, graphite, graphite oh, okay. lubricants that you see that in a lot of applications. And they do have some of that on orbit, which mm -hmm. is... And the problem that usually has to be minimal because anything that's a spray-on dry application will probably flake off. Oh, okay. That makes and, sense. Uh, whenever you're dealing with astronauts in a spacesuit, the biggest priority is always safety. Of course. So you don't want him to hurt him or herself. <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't want whatever you've built to break, fracture, crack, and yeah. create an unsafe environment. Yeah. Uh, if you're using a braided wire, you don't want it to, you know, uh, break one of the braid strands right. and then that turns into a needle yes um flying yeah. around the earth at eighteen thousand miles an hour or and, and an astronaut just so happened to translate by it and he caught his glove on mm. it and now he has a leak and now he's we're going back inside so right. everything is driven by safety of the person safety of the hardware you're providing so that you're not putting that crew member in an unsafe configuration damn and that was mainly your job was to make sure evas were functioning properly as far as those implementations you didn't do a lot to do with the internals uh, me personally no yeah. but there's a whole nother team That's that so deals cool. with internal and that one of the things that i was trying to say astronauts my job was to train them for a spacewalk so if right. they had a in the shuttle days they had a 10-day mission and they were got to do one six-hour spacewalk 
I go on a 10 to one training program with them mm. to make them good for that six hour period. So you stick with that one astronaut or, or, or pair or, or yeah. whatever, or, okay. or, or, or you have one in a backup, right? They always go out two at a time. Okay. Right. But both guys need to be trained on what they're doing. Yes. But, and that is six hours of their life while they're on orbit for, let's say 10 days. Yeah. You can imagine all the other training they were doing for all the other things that they have to do in yeah. that time. And to be able to grab that person and get him to focus for the time that you have with him and then actually have him remember. Yeah. You know, it's, it was, it was, it's a very tough job for them. Yeah. And it, and my job was to make it as easy on them as possible for that six hour time. I need them to pay attention when they're doing a spacewalk. What's an astronaut sense of humor like? Who was your favorite astronaut to work with? Uh, Joe Tanner was okay. one of my favorite astronauts. He flew uh, most of the Hubble missions. Oh, okay. And then uh, moved into space station after we got away from the Hubble programs and military test pilot, military pilot all his life. Yeah. Uh, worked in the industry. I couldn't tell you how many years he was an astronaut, but it was a lot. Yeah. And uh, trained him on uh, STS-4. Oh, okay. So your uh, first damn no, mission I'm sorry. Ever- not oh, not ST not ST I, I misspoke not STS okay. four but the the fourth space station mission oh okay yeah yeah which yeah. was actually like STS ninety seven yeah because it was after Hubble Hubble was thirty one right? right the first launch of okay there were several launches for Hubble but yes yeah okay um, uh, repair missions for Hubble oh okay. I mean I think they had six or seven over the life of the shuttle but wow. on the fourth space station mission okay um, I trained him and then I trained him again on the the twelfth space station mission so. He, he was known as the guy who was uh, very familiar with the electrical power system. Oh, okay. We put up four separate payloads as the different uh, you know, generators on space station. There's right. four separate large elements. So he was like the most proficient astronaut at that hardware. Very cool. Was that something he technically had a knowledge of or he just worked really hard at it and got to know it really well? It's just, uh, he got to do the first one. So okay. every chance they had to have him to do it again. Oh, so he got he that would, practice by force. Him. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the first one was in uh, uh, 2000, right at the end of 2000. And then we had the, the Columbia accident. Right. So the next one actually got pushed out several years past that. Right. And then, so he was, he probably hung around for six years waiting for that next one to come up. Yeah. And it happens a lot, but I mean, it was, he loved it. He would, he wouldn't trade it for the world. What made him your favorite? What's your favorite story about him? Um, it just in general, very hands-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I told you before the podcast, I have a, an old 280Z that is yes. my, my beautiful my toy. car. He has an old 240Z. Oh, okay. And he worked on it all his life to keep it on the road so we got a real camaraderie with our cars Mm. and then that just rolled into training and he he was military like i mentioned military pilot Mm -hmm. and the military pilots were always the easiest to train to do spacewalks because they were all hands-on kind of guys and already had the balls for it you know they weren't mentally distracted by that they they chose to do this yeah oh yeah (laughs) this is that's their feather in the calf is to come out of the military and actually get into the astronaut program absolutely so they were they were in in hog heaven and throw any problem at them going oh, we'll fix this yeah you know and 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 it seemed it just seemed the military guys were always the the most can do mm. and and I don't mean to downplay all oh, the of rest not. of them right but they they were always the uh, the easiest to train the you know the most common sense knowledge the most hands on experience yeah and. The hardest ones I I usually had to train were the doctors, the PhDs. They weren't distracted by the danger like the military guys trained were. 
and I don't really think there's a fear factor in it. It's mm. just they don't have that same kind of hands-on experience. Yeah, it's, they so use different they're, sides of their brain. They're 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 in a little less familiar territory. Sure, I mean sure. we're we're teaching PhDs to turn wrenches. Right. If you got any wrench turning experience in your regular life, it's simple. If you don't, it's much harder. Yeah. Uh, anybody these days, nobody wants to work on their car because they just don't understand them anymore. Right. Right. In my day, everybody had a tool bag and you fixed your own problems. Right. And, and, and life is just changing, Mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and doctors don't have to turn wrenches. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the, and I want to talk about SpaceX a little bit here in a little bit, but look at the new SpaceX, the dragon uh, capsule that just went up. It's a couple of, it's flat screens and buttons. There's no knobs. There's nothing to turn. There's barely anything analog about yeah. it. And, <laughs> and so it is a different mindset, right? You should see the shuttle. It's it's the old, you know, uh, finger protected switches. You know, they got a little guard on each side that can only go one way up or down. And, yeah. And there's a thousand of them. <laughs> the, in the space shuttle program, the STS the program, not program. the Dragon, the Not SpaceX the Dragon, stuff. not yeah. the, spe- the newer Everything's stuff. Everything's very, Every, yeah, everything analog. Is, and these guys are just sitting there, and then they just kind of touch it, a screen. Everything's like a Tesla, that's right. No, that's right. No knobs in a Tesla. Because it's all automated. Just I mean, they really do, I don't know what they com- do in there. Computer touchscreens, that's all it is, and that triggers whatever you used to need a manual switch for. Yeah. It's, it's great. That's it's, technology. It's, it is technology. It. It's interesting. I don't know how much it... I don't know how much benefit that is to change other than it takes the responsibility out of the pilot's hands. And it's basically it just a, an automated type of a deal. And, and, and it, it doesn't take anything out of their hands. It's just a different way to trigger it. Mm-hmm. You know, they still have to be there to do, initiate the commands, mm. right? They're just not throwing switches anymore. They're doing a touchscreen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's mm. good that technology is moving that way. It's much lighter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's much more efficient. A lot less likely to to problems, mm. except it comes. I mean, how often do you have a problem with your computer screen? Oh, never. This thing yeah. works perfectly every, every time. time. No, yeah, all right. the time. I, yeah, I know. And <laughs> so I mean, it, all it, the time. It's it has its own it has its own failure modes, but. Uh, so I also want to just before we leave the uh, test facilities part of it, uh, the your first time in the vomit comet. What was your experience? Uh, how did you feel about it? Um, just your first time. No, that's right. And and. Uh, the first time I did it, we were working on a simple uh, mechanical bolted interface, and uh, it turned out that it was a, a bolt on a cable, so as you torque the bolt, you got tension in the cable, mm. and, and that was just like a clamping device, right, to, you know, like a turnbuckle kind of a configuration, mm-hmm. and it turned out that when we took that to thermal extremes, it took a lot more torque to undo it. Huh. Then we set it to. So if you set it to, let's just say, 25 foot-pounds, if I take that into a, a thermal, a cold thermal environment, it took like 50 foot-pounds to, to release the torque. Huh. Because as things got cold, they shrunk. Right. And the, you created higher compression, which means I had a higher torque to release it. Mm. Simple. Yeah. Our requirements say a crew member can only put in 25 foot-pounds into an equation to engage or break a torque. So I had a test data that said I needed him to break 50 foot-pounds. And so what we did is we simulated that in a test stand in the Vomit Comet, went up on orbit, and we said, okay, I'm going to set that to 50 foot-pounds. Show me that you, when you're free-floating yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a simulated zero-gravity environment, can you release 50 foot-pounds of torque with this torque wrench that I just handed you? Yeah. 
it's not a simple thing to do because you can't react there's torque. nothing to push off there's no <laughs> there's no <laughs> torque of your own you gotta you grab a handle yeah and then you're pushing with the other one so you got to react it all through your arms and through your chest right and that's why they said 25 foot pounds because they don't want you to exert over exert yourself yeah. in this uncomfortable environment hmm. and we proved that the crew member could apply 50 foot pounds in this configuration with this handhold relative to where that bolt is and how he would need to position his body to break the torque. He did it no problem. He was like, yeah, I got that. Uh, and, it, and we knew it was not going to be a problem, but mm -hmm. we had to prove, I mean, the the requirement is less than the true capability of a person. Okay, that makes sense. They're yeah. trying to stay a little conservative. Sure. Right? But we knew he was going to be able to do it, but we had to prove it. Right. So we set up this test configuration. We flew it. 20 times we put six astronauts through it so we did it a bunch of times because yeah. your capability is dependent on the person so you put you know smaller people larger people and you just let them keep trying it until you prove it i collected the data and i went back to the owner of the requirement and said they can handle this here's mm -hmm. my proof mm -hmm. and then they said okay so, but that was my first experience, and this was probably in the late 90s. Experientially, experimentally rather, that was cool. What about experientially? How did you like being in a simulated zero-gravity environment? What did you think? I knew you were focused uh, on job, uh, but did I, you get a little chance to oh, enjoy yeah, it? Oh, we, we get to play a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, and there was one case I mentioned to you when we were doing the, uh, the goo experiments. Yeah. And they had this really technical apparatus that was holding the goo and holding the catalyst and it was a pressurized system mm. that was releasing it through you know a tube that was a specifically designed you know hose and, and nozzle system and that the pressurized chamber that they were holding all this in blew a blew a gasket oh. within the first couple runs and it was like <clears throat> okay well, we're done. We got 18 more of these to go. Well, there's three other payloads that are doing other experiments while we're up there. So, oh, okay. So your job was over. My job was over. So we just got to ride for the next, <laughs> you know, 20, 30 parabolas. Yeah. And we were able to play. Damn, that's cool. Yeah. Did so you bring was, little balls and stuff up there to play or you just float? I mean, just enjoy the zero gravity and spin you, around? You do. Uh, yeah. They called it the, the hamster. Yeah. Oh, you okay. Run up and down around the oh, internal yeah. volume and just kind of... Just just run around. To, you know, somebody grabs you and they just spin you. Yeah. So you're sitting there and you just spin around yourself. Or you could always throw things back at one another. We always had, you know, pens or yeah. Sharpies or whatever. You throw them back at one <laughs> another and see how they, they handle it. But, yeah, it was, it, was, it was always fun. And I got to say, it physically never really bothered me. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, you know, you just can't handle the roller coaster ride. And, they, uh, they get and nauseous. that's why you get the vomit comment. Uh, they get, they get nom nauseous. And... The worst thing you can do when you're running a test like that is vomit. Is vomit yeah. because <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I smell something like uh, that, yeah. that makes me want to vomit. It's a, it's a so chain reaction. Yeah. You don't want to to get that everywhere and then get everybody feeling nauseous. Did and, that ever happen? You went on a ton of these things. Oh yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah, and they you you get trained to deal with yourself. Okay, here's your bag. Yeah don't make a mess yeah <laughs> right Cap here's your here's your tie wraps yeah. you know don't make a mess and then the back of the plane had you know uh, seats enough for all the the test crew mm. so there were 40 standard you know seats in the back of the plane so mm -hmm. if you get sick go strap in yeah. you're done <laughs> take your bags with you and yeah. that's just it once you started it was almost impossible to stop oh yeah 
it's kind of like getting seasick. It just gets right. worse. You know, the longer you're out there rolling on the waves, the worse it gets once it started. So, mm. um, but luckily I never had that problem. Always enjoyed it. And uh, when we were doing the, the Challenger uh, experiments, mm-hmm. not I said uh, the Columbia yes, Vomit Comet experiments, we were doing 30 parabolas out and 30 parabolas back, which was a day, mm-hmm. basically a day of work. And we would do that five days a week for three weeks. Wow. And then, and just keep doing it. That's you your know? job. That was the job. And <laughs> we had a crew of people, we called it the goo crew. Okay. And we would all get together and we all knew what our objectives were and we just, you know, bear through it. And every time you had different astronauts, different test criteria, different whatever it was, and you just keep repeating it. Damn. But it's fun when it's in a cool test environment. Absolutely. It's when you're just sitting there watching, you know, crystals grow or something, it's not so exciting. It's a little, <laughs> little different. A little bit different. So uh, tell me about the uh, the, uh, the solar panels um, that you helped. Uh, uh, I think I mentioned as part of the job, I, I work for the uh, for uh, Rocketdyne, which is a branch of Rockwell International, and they were responsible for building the power system for space stations. So it's solar power batteries charging just charging like any rechargeable battery system you have here on the ground um the problem was the amount of power you want available Mm. so they wanted uh over 80 kilowatts continuous power which is a lot of solar cells and the blankets for the solar cell um there were eight sets of blankets and each one was 30 foot wide by 100 foot long and to fly that, right, it, it, it compressed down to a, an, an accordion, a mass that was like a um, Tinker Toy style. Oh, okay. That uh, deployed and retracted on its own. Okay. And the panels were accordion folded so that they closed down to something very, very small. Mm-hmm. And then when you got up there, you self-deployed. And it, you know, you have these big sails coming out. Thirty foot by hundred is massive, and we had eight of those. And you were you were instrumental in aiding in the design of how those would roll out. Um, and 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 the design, we we had companies that specialize in solar technology. Okay. So they bring to the table a concept that will work. As far as material and that will be able to do that, and as far something as, that will accordion fold, right. something that will fit in this compartmentalized small thing, and our job was to, if it needed to be assembled, if it mm. needed to be actuated, we had to prove out that if it was replaceable, you had to retract it, unbolt it, replace it, redeploy it, wow. um, anything like that. So everything was made to be modular, right? So that it was replaceable. Um, we call it ORUs, on-orbit replacement units. Right. Everything was replaceable. So if and when it failed, it was easily replaceable. Wow. And uh, with the solar panels, um, these things were designed. We launched them. The first one launched in 2000. Mm-hmm. It was designed with a 10-year life. Oh. That was 20 years ago now. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so <laughs> they're still functioning. But that's just like Voyager or anything else. They plan for it to break down in a certain amount of time, and it way exceeds that. It does. I mean, that's a, that's a life experiment. Sure. But, but still, we're 20 years in now, and now those first solar arrays aren't performing near what they were performing when they were first deployed. I bet not. Plus, the technology's gotten a lot better since then, right? Yes, but being on orbit, it gets 
hit by micrometeors. Sure. It, it, you know, you get, and it was designed to be about twice as efficient as it needed to be. Oh, okay. So that when you get small hits and some strings start failing, you still have enough backup string, or you have enough strings remaining that you're still producing the kind of power you need to produce. Hmm. 20 years in, they're getting to the point where they're not producing as much power as we wanted. Yeah. So they were initially burning out 20 kilowatts. Now they're at 10 or below. Hmm. And and they're they're just getting to the point where they're not good enough anymore. Yeah. So NASA has paid for a new set of solar arrays to be put in place where the old ones were. Huh. And now we don't have the shuttle any longer. Yeah. Right. So what are you launching on? So we're we're driven by the constraints you mentioned, the SpaceX Dragon. That's one of they have an external cargo bay right. that you can launch things on. So we designed a new set of solar arrays that would fit in the constraints of the of the dragon trunk. Wow. And again, you take full advance uh, full uh, capabilities of the new technologies. Sure. Solar arrays, they're now, instead of being a hard substructure, they, they build them on a flexible substructure. Mm. So the new designs for solar arrays are more like um, a paper towel. They, are, they oh. roll up in a circle as opposed to accordion folding flat. Right. And then when you deploy them, it's a much easier mechanism to because deploy them. Pulls. Because it just Along a track, yeah, it, it just, rolls. Like it you're just, pulling a paper towel. It, it just unrolls. Huh. And and again, the solar cell technology has gotten much better. Mm -hmm. It's much more efficient, less surface area required. Mm. So we helped design a whole new set of, of new solar arrays. And my job was, again, the mechanical side. Here's how we're going to fly it. Mm -hmm. Here's how you unbolt its launch restraints. Here's how we transport it by a human being out to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Here's how you tap into the existing system. Here's how you structurally mount it to the existing thing that's already out there. And you then you deploy this new array over the old array. Mm -hmm. And the new array is smaller, shorter, shadows the one behind it. But that one by itself is enough to meet your power needs. So you, you use the existing structure of the array that's already there, but that's damaged that you need a new solar panel on. So you don't even take the structure out. You just put a new one over the top of it. Yeah. You're basically. Would, yeah. Cause it's more efficient. Well, and again, and you don't have a bunch of space debris. You don't have to undo we, it and we, jettison it off. We, we could have done that, Yeah, but then we didn't want to create the problems that that goes along with. Then I need to have a, a dedicated spacewalk to go out and jettison it. Right. And that's true too. And I yeah. don't want to spend that time if I don't have to. So they left everything in place and they right. just built over it. It's a much more efficient way to do it. It's smart. Right. And then huh. all of the solar arrays, they're built on uh, roll rings so that you can always point them to the sun. Right. So that whole mechanism, you don't need to redesign. Yeah. Right. So all I'm doing is creating a new sheet of solar cells and taking advantage of the existing design of the mechanics behind tracking the sun with with solar panels damn that's cool and patrick do you know anything <laughs> i did not know uh, <laughs> i knew they were flexible but i didn't know that you, you know can, how much thought went into utilizing what's already there yeah yeah that's that's and that was again you want to take advantage of as much as you can that's up there you don't want to reinvent the wheel yeah and so Just make it roll smoother and 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 the, the 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 bearings associated with those roll rings are very complicated, mm. and they not only can spin freewheel forever, they pass electricity while they do that. Mm. Very cool mechanism. Very cool. Um, but again, get outside of the mechanism. I'm not supposed to care. I'm just asked to assemble it right. and, and build it and and strap onto it. So 
My job was to make the mechanisms so that they could bolt onto it, actuate it, get to it, and then you know push the buttons to deploy it. So the solar panels on on either side too, right? So did you have to do this twice? There's uh, typically, just typically one? a solar panel is one side. One side, okay. So you always rotate that panel to face the sun, and it's always the same face. Okay, I don't know why I thought there was two, like That's or okay. one on one side, one on the other, or and that it worked from both directions. This, I knew they rotated. They rotate, but, yeah. so typically you only See, have I mean, one functioning side, makes sense. and the other side is always in the shadows. Makes sense. Damn, and, that's cool, man. Yeah, and again, you learn a lot about about solar technology. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the only reason that solar technology is so available mm-hmm. anymore is from what we learned putting things in space. So dispel the myth that um, SpaceX doesn't need NASA. I and, and easy to say, but mm-hmm. NASA pays for everything. Yeah, you know, so it's easy to say you don't need them, but right. in, until you can find. Somebody who wants to fly all the time, right? And and it's, I mean, it's not a lot of the design, a lot of the money that went into the design for the SpaceX Dragon and all of his cool technology came from NASA seed money. Mm. So if you didn't have that seed money to actually do the design and development and and the testing and and then the actual execution, yeah. Um, he, I mean, he, and Elon Musk is incredible yeah right i mean he, he is so smart and he has such ambitions for people and technologies that i mean he's he's pushing the envelope in every aspect sure um he is a competitor for boeing so i can't say that i like him right but he's awesome you right? have to say it, yeah yeah and uh, but but everything he's done when he first landed those uh the first stages back on the yeah. ground i never thought that was even possible yeah in an interview that he made before the first one he said, I, I give it about a 50-50 chance of working. Damn. <laughs> and I sat there and I said, okay, I've worked in the space industry all my life. Yeah. 99.6 was about the furthest I could ever go down on probability of success. And right. he's going, 50-50 shot. I'm good. But you it's know? his, you know, like you said, it's his it's, money, but it's NASA's seed money that's doing that too. People, Because people, there's a big disconnect between what they think NASA's <laughs> role in SpaceX is, and they're actually very, they're bedfellows. I think, oh, Yes completely mm-hmm. right and and but what it's done is it allowed him to bring in the technologies that allow him to push the envelope yes yeah right and landing first stage is almost commonplace anymore right right he, he he flew one of his heavy lift vehicles and it came down too fast and it blew up on the thing but he says i got about 80 percent of the of the data i needed exactly. even though we had a catastrophic explosion you know and they'll, but, but they'll do it they'll they'll figure it out and yeah. they will and he it ha- was pretty damn close it just landed a little hard right and, and yeah it came down he, it something something didn't work properly yeah. and he came down too hard yeah and, and and but again that's the problem with most of these it comes down at a little bit of a wrong mm-hmm. angle or it comes down not where it was supposed to and it lands on something it wasn't supposed to or he's hitting a barge and he misses the barge right. you know but but to be able to actually have the ability to execute that yeah it's it's awesome it changes and the game it does yeah. and but he's just getting into human space flight mm-hmm. and i don't mean to be a naysayer but when the accidents happened on the shuttle mm-hmm. the programs were shut down for 2 to 3 years right right until you dug into every aspect you could of what the problem was and how to fix the problem. But while you're down for that period of time, they go back through everything. It's it, not just the one problem that you got into. They want you to review everything to make sure there's no other misses like that along the way. Exactly. And it takes a long period of time. So if we have another accident, 
it's going to be very hard for even a SpaceX to recover from that. He recovers from accidents pretty quickly right now because there's not a man in the loop. Right, right. But as if we ever have an accident where there's a man in the loop, he's it's going to take it's going to be the same kind of protocol that you step back, you research everything, and you figure it out. Yeah, because the uh, Challenger one, the first explosion that happened in '86. Uh, that one was due to that O-ring issue that you and I had talked about, but it was the two O-ring system. The first one failed every now and then and then didn't make it past the second one and still successfully flew. And right. so they figured, well, there's a bit of a tolerance there, but it was unseasonably cold that day. It was like, what, January 28th? So it was still cold. It was it's winter, winter, even though it was Florida. Still winter. And, yeah, and it was below freezing for sure, so that froze up. But it was two years, and then it ended up adding a third O-ring to that, correct? And that's the correct. Boosters, and, okay. And it's a it's kind of a, a safety procedure. If mm -hmm. if you're dealing with any system you need to work, it's usually singly redundant. Mm. So like you said, the two rings, mm -hmm. one can fail, the second one still functions. Mm -hmm. Whenever you put a man in a loop, you typically go to double redundancy. Mm. So now I got to put three seals in place and from the example we were just saying. So the first two can fail, but the third one will still work on its own. Right. And you start building systems, all systems to be doubly redundant. Mm. So you put in four sensors if you need two. Right. So two can fail, so you still have two good ones. Which adds weight. Well, but it and complexity. Right. And, and now software to handle inputs from four instead of two right um i mean it, it just everything gets complicated the more redundant you get there's just so much to it and this is why i thank you so much for talking with us is yeah. because there's so much to this stuff that i find so fascinating i know the listeners do as well but that you don't even think about you know it's these kind of detailed operations that are fascinating and 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 again from a build it perspective you have to build it to be redundant and mm -hmm. then you have to prove it's redundant and then after you get two failures you still have to prove that your function whatever your function is actually works yeah. even after those failures. There's um, a lot of levels instead of back to the drawing board. There's a lot of levels in between that. Right. And we were talking about power system. Yeah. I think I mentioned earlier there's batteries on space station. So there's 48 batteries. Mm -hmm. They all weigh about 400 pounds each. Mm. And there's they're about the size, each of them is about the size of a small refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just think about the logistics associated with changing those out. Yeah. When we first flew the space station, the batteries on space station were nickel cadmium, mm. NICAD batteries. Mm -hmm. And we haven't used NICAD technology in ages. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I actually said they're wrong. They were nickel hydrogen, which was the predecessor to nickel cadmium. Oh. So they were really old, te old technology cells. And again, we just replaced all those batteries because they also had a 10-year life. Right. So then we had to change out and do the math. It was 400 times 48. Yeah. You do them a six-pack at a time. Damn. And we're flying up these huge refrigerators. And then we're having astronauts go out there and physically change them all out and then bring the dead ones home. Oh, wow. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge endeavor to go that. But now we have lithium-ion batteries on space station, mm -hmm. twice as efficient. We had to use the same footprint, but we use half as many, mm. and 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 it and it works. So and, cool. and you know, you 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 advance your technology. The mechanical interface is the same, but the chemical technology and the batteries change. So, like you were just mentioning with the solar cells, we got better, more efficient solar cells. We have better, more efficient batteries, which keep the space station moving on beyond its its life, its, it's, it's design life. Yeah, it's expected. Well, Damn, least, that's cool. At least they didn't weigh 400 pounds up there. But. That's true. 
that's true. And nice. Yeah, because you get one and you astronaut. Just have one in theory, person moving, yeah. right? Yeah. And and we did. I mean, we we tested all that out. I mean, you do that underwater. You also make the hardware neutral. So they're moving around this, you know, three by three by eighteen inch box, that's a battery, and then, you know they're moving around the water like it's nothing. You only have to deal with water drag, and if you move slow, that really doesn't come into play. And they just unbolt them, pull them out, hand them off, take a new one, put the new one in, and and move on. Sounds so simple, but the actual execution is complicated. Everything's much harder though when you're up there. It is, and, and much more it, cumbersome, especially with your and gloves. You, and you need. To be choreographed, so yeah. you're not sitting around, you know, twiddle, around. Twid, twiddling your thumbs, enjoying while, yourself like an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> you got you got to take you know advantage of every minute you have, mm -hmm. and you don't want a lot of downtime, and you want to be as efficient as you can possibly make it. Yeah, which is part of the training, becoming more efficient, doing it in an, in the most efficient manner as possible, choreographic so it's efficient. Fascinating. And that's all. It's all good. Good work. Good topics. Fun to do. And Fascinating. I was certified to scuba dive and scuba diving in the in the lab. We op actually opened up the neutral buoyancy facility in uh, 97. Mm. And we, my company was the first one to test the power systems for space station in the pool. What was that like? You have to go there with electricity. I, and again, you're not dealing with electricity. You're dealing with you, the components that will operate the electricity. You're dealing later. with the me mechanical components okay. that, that house the electricity. So you're not working gotcha. with electricity underwater. It's just the mechanical volumes. I would think not. I just right. wanted to make sure. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. We're, we're not doing that. But <laughs> not only were we testing our hardware, we were testing the facility. Mm. And of course, a facility like that first time out the gate, nothing ran smoothly <laughs> right? it's water it's a it, pool guys how well, could you screw this up but you need overhead cranes uh -huh. and we have a we had a shuttle arm simulator mm -hmm. it was hydraulic underwater so it was working and commandable to work just like the shuttle arm cool in in uh, zero gravity again complicated mechanism you know there's a whole division of the neutral buoyancy facility that's all they did yeah. fix, fix the arm run the arm drive the arm <coughs> and again complicated mechanism in a complicated environment yeah necessary to do what we wanted to accomplish wow but everything was you know you run into a problem you you get out of the pool yeah um, let yeah. me let me ask you a question on your um okay so did you have anything you wanted to ask we've just been chit-chatting man i do have a question but it's more theoretical now so <laughs> where do you where do you see the biggest challenge or how f how far are we from being able to sustain a long-term life span on say mars an asteroid i i am nice polite way to put this i am not a big fan of going to mars only because if you if you look at what we got out of going to the moon it's pretty limited yeah you know we didn't we we learned that we could do it mm -hmm. but we didn't really gain anything from being on the moon we got bragging rights over russia yeah and, okay. and we brought around a few hundred pounds of rocks some street cred is pretty you know, dope though you it, know, well and international again, street cred we proved the technology okay okay so that's good going to mars everybody you know is signing up i want to be the first one to go to mars he signed up i did and and <laughs> And, and you know, you probably know the physics of it, right? Like I mean, he's asking for his personal life, and you're just poo pooing on it. No, you're like, I don't think you should do that. No, I, what <laughs> I'm what I'm going. saying is, you know, the, the the only time you jump from Earth to Mars is once a year when the two planets are as close together as they get in their orbits, mm -hmm. right? 
that jaunt takes six to nine months to get to, depending on exactly how close it is to you when you actually are making that, that trip. And then a whole year goes by and the planets are going on their own over it. And after a whole year, they come back and they get in close proximity again. And then that's your chance to jump off mm. and come home. So let's do the math here. Six to nine months to get there, mm-hmm. a year, and then six to nine months to get back. So you've committed two and a half years of your life to do that one time and spend one year on Mars. Now, what's the chance that something goes wrong in that two and a half year period? Like, it's probably 90% <laughs> that yeah. something's gonna go wrong. Of course. 100%. Right. Well, 100, 100%. yeah, 100% and, is and, why. And again, there's like, and it was the movie Mars, one of the best movies made with yeah, te- technical you. cred, right? Yeah. But I mean, they, you know, somehow this vehicle turned around and went back to help him. But if you actually watched it, it was like 500 days later is when they actually got there to help him. Yeah. That's like a year and a half they waited before. So somehow he had to survive for a year and a half with no help. Yeah. The chance of being able to do that is, in my mind, a huge challenge. I'm not saying, it, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying there's just a bunch of prep that has to happen. You're going to be launching modules that land on Mars and just sit there and that's that's your 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 resources yeah you know you need water you need air you need food and you got to have enough up there for somebody to survive a year and then get back and then not only that they have to have a a vehicle to take off from mars and rendezvous back out on the vehicle they're going to come home on right or or at least come home and and that thing has to be able to survive a year on mars with no work no problems and you know and how many times have we aborted a launch because of some small little problem, right? How many, how many times they don't have a lot of time here. You only get a couple of chances when you're, when, you know, Mars is passing by earth to actually be ready to go. If you miss that opportunity, it's another year. And, and how much resources do you want to have to, do you want to plan to go do that? I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying it takes a lot of resources, a lot of planning, they're going to have to work out some kind of a rescue scheme or system. I think they were, they were going to send stuff there ahead of time and That's drop it plan. off. Yeah. That's the plan. And, and so, so there could be a return rocket, but even that, you miss your window. Now what do you do? You wait. And then, and then you, you, you run tests for another year until that window comes up again. And those are the kind of things that make this a very high-risk proposition. Yeah. So you think station first, build out further stations so where we can get out of low earth orbit and then have a resource there. And and I was always a proponent. Let's go back to the moon. Mm-hmm. You can prove we can habitate habitate the moon, right? And and the real question is what are you going to learn from Mars? Why did you pick Mars? Mm-hmm. Right? Why don't we just go back to the moon? Learn everything it takes to learn to have to 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 you know live in that environment. Learn how to build modules, learn how to assemble modules, learn how to grow food, learn how to do everything on, on the moon so that if we ever had to do it, you got a way to go do it. Yeah. Um, and if something goes wrong on the moon, you can get there yeah. and, and save somebody in a, in a, I don't want to say short course, but relatively- A lot shorter than Mars. Yeah. Right, relatively quickly, which makes you know, your, your emergency backup plans more feasible. See, the problem here is, is that that's too practical. I know. And that makes too much <laughs> yeah. sense. And you don't get the bragging and rights to say you're the first person to send something to Mars because nobody has ever done that. 
I, in humanity's history. I, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, but that's why it's not as I, cool. When, All right? when when Bush was in office and he said, you know, that that was we were going back to the moon, and I mean, I was going. I am so psyched. That is just going to be awesome because that's going to be the project that ends my career. Right. Uh, you know, by the time I get through that, and I couldn't think of a cooler environment and uh, you know you're going to talk start talking you know buggies and yep. bulldozers mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. and ways and inflatable technologies yeah. were coming into coming you know coming into being a reality mm -hmm. we could put inflatable laboratories on the mood you know, you set up a base on the mood built out of inflatable modules and you know how do you secure them how do you stay down how do you protect them yeah you know all those things came into play and that was going to be just just too much fun because it was going to be my line of work was having astronauts in the loop doing whatever you're asking them to do yeah you know building modules building yeah. maintaining you know whatever it is you know and that would have been a great end of career so now it's back now and you know this is 20 years later yeah and and you know they're talking about going back to the moon again as the test ground to go to mars that's what they should do they should not and, as dope. Let's be honest. Well, they will, but it's I, super cool still. And th and that's how you develop the technology to go to Mars. It makes too much sense. You're an engineer. You don't know what it's like to to say that this is cool and that's why we're doing it. You want to go because it's practical, smart, efficient, safe. All those. But, but the the real kicker is what's your end goal on Mars? Yeah. Why do you want sustainable to go? live? And I think that they eventually want to have a second Earth. I mean, that would be. For humanity's future, I think they're talking about terraforming the bitch. I mean, I, I'm I'm still at you. Got to have an objective that's achievable. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't really think we have an objective. We just want to get there. That's it. That's and that's it. I was being uh, tongue in cheek when I was no, saying no, that I, your idea I, was garbage because no, it no. is the smart way to do it. It's just it's garbage I, in the sense of that it's not it's, as cool. You, you even though it's super cool, it's the damn moon, right? Well, not like it's not an accomplishment in the majorness exactly. that it is, but the rovers really haven't brought. What we, what I had high, high, my best case scenario was the rovers and, to find a little more than they did. Well, they're sending the drone there to they justify got an aeronautical yeah. and, element going. And there's, I'm not saying that's great technology to, to, to get at, but when you go there, what more are you going to do? Exactly. Right? And, and again, you got to bring all your, re there's no resources. You got to mm. bring all your resources with you. So why do we want to go habit to, you know, uh, inhabit the Mars if there's no resources there? Because it's cool. That's cool. That's it, it. It needs to be more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Does, it, like, does it? Does it? Kurt? It does. It does. So would you I rather could... see uh, asteroids? Because that's where I th I'm excited about is asteroid and, and mining. We we have uh, we have looked at some technology about uh, landing on asteroids and mm -hmm. doing things on asteroids, and it's very cool. And you know and that all gets back that to is. Armageddon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And ridiculous man. No, but I mean, fun. Yeah, you know, it the is whole, fun. The whole idea was fun. It was not practical. Because that's what you want to do. Turn fun. one giant object heading to Earth into thousands, and, right? And that's correct. Yeah. Well, and, and you'd be in charge of training that's right. Bruce Willis and his team, right? <laughs> well, yeah. You'd have to deal you with your own Ben Affleck yeah. giving you attitude. NASA yeah. actually gave that film crew access to the neutral points lab some of the some of the the video that was done for that movie awesome was actually done in the neutral points lab funnest time any of those guys ever had oh, doing yeah. work oh. was to for them to bring in their toys and them actually being on video and they actually got credits after in the movie that that's cool nasa neutral buoyancy lab and we actually and, and the guys loved it because uh film crews mm -hmm. they seem to have an endless amount of money yeah, yeah. oh so, yeah 
every lunch was catered oh yeah you know overtime was full paid you know and <laughs> it was like oh cool That's let's, let's go to work today you yeah. know normally it's like get your cup of coffee and get in the water mm-hmm. no you get lunch and yeah. breakfast and coffee you get to hang out with and, Liv Tyler yeah, yeah. And, you, and you actually get to hang out with the actors yeah. you know and and that was they thought that was the best thing and that's amazing there, I think there's only been two movies the other one was uh, I think it was Cowboys oh Cowboys in Space yeah where that was, was a great movie with yeah. Tommy Lee Jones yes and, and okay they Keith also they also did some filming in the Nutribuoyancy Lab or at NASA for mm. different different areas in the film that makes sense and this is an underrated movie by the way that was a very is. sweet underrated movie <laughs> that was very nice <laughs> well uh, just one more question for you um and then we gotta we gotta probably wrap it up here. We're going okay. to get on time here. Um, but what? So what is your go to? Uh, okay, Hollywood, you figured it out. You got it right. Other than Armageddon and their Im- impeccable accuracy, yeah. M- Mars was one of the best movies. And they also had some astronauts involved. With Matt Damon. Yeah. Okay. In Mars. Okay. Uh, one that they actually had a lot of uh, uh, interaction with NASA and astronauts was uh, Gravity. Mm. Another great, I mean, it was all filmed in space. Yeah. And it was, in my opinion, one of the worst movies ever made from a technical aspect. Right. Because they were... Well, it wasn't filmed in space. It was filmed on Earth about space. Correct. Okay. I just wanted to clear that up for the audience. They're like, damn, Sandra Bullock went to space, yo. She she didn't go to space. But everything they were doing... Was shot outside in space. No, I'm just saying everything that they were doing, they weren't following what it would be like in space gotcha you saw sandra bullock skinny into uh, a spacesuit yeah in shorts and a t-shirt mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way no you know, they weigh they wear this long john outfit that's full of uh, uh tubing that actually provides cooling agent to cool their bodies because if you actually just got in a spacesuit without this thing on you would cook your your body temperature would, would heat up would yeah. heat up and there's no way to cool it down. Wow. So you saw her skimming out in in in, in shorts and a and a t shirt and you're going, That's really cool. And yeah. and she's ready to go in like two minutes, right? And anytime an astronaut goes into a spacewalk, he spends at least four hours in a in a prep and a and in an oxygen environment system Damn. to prep before he goes out the door because once he goes out the door it's a harsher environment and yeah. his body needs to be ready for it. And it's, I mean, it, just those kind of things. And then I believe that was the one where they pulled out the fire extinguisher and started yep. scooting around. That was it. That's a fantasy. So <laughs> No? Ah. <laughs> Not going to happen? So, I mean, NASA spends a bunch of mon- money on cryogenic fuels to the, the astronauts. They all fly with, uh, it's called the Safer, but it's a emergency backpack. Okay. If they get separated from the vehicle. Right. They've got one oh, shot. It's like the little jet pack. They got a jet, okay. but it's... It's all cold fuels, right? So there's no, you know, there's no yeah, yeah, because nothing <laughs> no. ignites in space, right? Right. Okay. So it's all cold fuels, and and they have about a limited about ten seconds of fuel. Mm. Better make it count, right? Yeah, and and Unlike so George they actually Clooney. Uh, <laughs> George Clooney had triple that. N- another another a little cavalier with it. Another great test facility at NASA is their virtual reality lab, which is uh-huh. you know goggles 3D. Yeah, and they have a model of the entire space station and the shuttle. And they simulate sending a guy, he, he got separated from the vehicle and he needs to get back to it. Huh. So they give him a, a, a rate and a spin of how quickly he's separating from the space station. Oh, God. And he needs, having 10, you know, 10 bursts of, of propellant, he needs to stop his spin, 
rotate his body so that he's looking back at the vehicle and then spend all the rest of your fuel to get some kind of velocity going back to that going back to that vehicle have you ever done it I've done it in the simulator, okay. yes. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. It's nearly impossible to I do. I did. Because right? then you go and you just miss the damn thing. Right. Or you skip <laughs> off of it, right? Or, or, you know, that's just it. Once you get back, and they did this in a lot of the movies where, you know, they're they're buzzing around outside and they're mm-hmm. just flying yeah. from one module to the next. And it's like, that never happens, you know? <laughs> Everything is, he's got, a, he's got a safety tether on and he's never allowed to let go with both hands. Okay. Right? That's you always cool. It's always a hand over hand protocol and you never let go of the first one before you grab onto the second one. It's an old wingman's motto. The people that used to walk on the wings on biplanes, that's sure. the motto. Never let go of something until you have a hold of something Correct. else. And, and you have to live by it. But in these movies, they're just yeah. flying yeah. from module to module, and they're not tethered or anything. And, yeah, take a bit of And they have all these, there. all these backpacks that zoom around. And yeah, with around. infinite number of fuel. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Well, that's the number one What fear. about the Matt Damon thing uh, in Mars whenever he... Um, poked a hole in his suit and shot use it like an iron man remember <laughs> yeah, and like I mean, a jetpack doesn't work that not way it? either damn it <laughs> you know? this is awesome <laughs> he, but he has uh, the, the, like i said the spacesuit is a spaceship yeah. in itself so he has so limited but he has limited uh, limited air yeah. limited environment not enough to do what he did and you don't want to be doing that that's with your breathing you. air yeah. you know <laughs> that's where they lost him he, they had in the whole movie and, and, that was it and they're not controlling that and yeah it's okay <laughs> but when he when they launched off of Mars mm-hmm. in the movie Mars that was so awesome the that way was awesome that, the way that they, all the... they yeah got rid of everything yeah. and they're using you know a parachute to cover the vehicle to give it some you know minimal amount of drag as it's launching because yeah, wind resistance is a lot different because it has no atmosphere right or it has some hella little atmosphere yeah, nothing ha- like we are compared to correct nothing okay. at all but it still has drag and yeah. you want to minimize that when you're launching mm-hmm. otherwise it's just keeping you down so you took the weight out from the panels but then that exposed a bunch of crevices where Oxygen or air could be captured and create drag. So you want to took the whole top off the capsule, as I remember. So it was like all that was just going to act as a as a wind drag, right? And your initial ascent until you get into true vacuum. Damn, that's cool. And and the other one, the the only bad thing about Mars, or I should say, the worst thing was the whole premise for the movie. You had to give him license. How did he get stuck on Mars? Yes, there was some like windstorm, right? Ain't no wind on Mars, nope. you know. So I mean, <laughs> damn, <laughs> straight out the gate, <laughs> straight out. I mean, but but in order to make the story or mm-hmm. to set the story, they had to create an incident, an issue, yeah. and that was the incident. And we're sitting there going, "Yeah, that ain't gonna happen." Yeah. But I was actually went to Gravity with a couple of very good friends of mine that are you know very techy, you know NASA space guys. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, there was actually an astronaut we trained was there with his wife watching the movie. Oh, cool. We come out of the movie and we we're both, you know, talking with one another and dissing the movie. Oh yeah! As you're coming out, he comes walking down the aisle behind us with his wife, mm-hmm. arm in arm, and all of a sudden he starts putting his finger in his mouth, going, "Ah, you gag!" <laughs> you know, because how bad the yeah. movie was gagging, and his wife is sitting there beating on him. It was her idea. We're in public. Stop <laughs> doing that. It was hilarious. Hilarious. That is awesome. But it was so true. Even the astronauts are sitting there going. You know, that's just not real. I mean, it's cool as you're making this look. And you got to give them some license. But sure. Yeah. We just, we gave Gav- Gravity like a, you know, a half star for okay. uh, pulling off technical reality. And then, that and half star then, was only you... because it had a sexy Sandra Bullock in it, too. <laughs> that's a true statement. 
Yeah, I took my girlfriend to see that at the time, and she did not understand why I was not thrilled with upset. that movie. Yeah, she said, wasn't that great? Like, yes. Mm, yeah. I'm and, upset. And and they, they created yeah. this China space station out of nowhere. Yeah, they we're disappeared. Now, we're yeah, now that's fine. Oh, that's, well, that's, it's like in Cowboys. Uh, they had the, the Space Cowboys. They had that Russian thing that had a bunch of nukes on it that was falling back to Earth, sure. and that was problematic. Yeah. Yeah, There's always, a bunch of stuff up there we don't know about. We gotta gotta pretend to make the reality happen. That's Absolutely. Right. Uh, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate Welcome. this. This was awesome. We'll definitely do it again. You're my NASA consult now. My oh, there NASA we go. consult. Uh, so, Patrick, thank you so much, dude. Do you have any anything additional or anything you'd like to say? Thank you. No, I appreciate it. This nah, was fantastically been interesting. Been fun talking. Absolutely. Well, you're you're wonderful. You're always invited back anytime. Uh, listeners, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, please uh, just check us out on the Instagram there at Expanding Reality Podcast. Uh, Facebook there for as long as I keep that up. Uh, YouTube, there will be a video of this up. And then um, be good to one another. Uh, Get out of the left-hand lane. Just do something nice for somebody else. And uh, go watch Gravity and just pick it apart. <laughs> and that'll be fun. Uh, Kurt, Patrick, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great being here. Thank you. Thank yes, you. Sir.